0: You are listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thanks for joining us for this teaching series on Leviticus, a call to priesthood. How's everybody doing? Today we start talking about Leviticus. Yeah. We're not the only church to try to talk about Leviticus, but there probably aren't a long list of them anywhere, but anyway. Anyway. We're excited to do this. Uh, I'm just going to dive right in. I've got a limited amount of time. got this much time, this much to talk about. You guys ready? Okay. So in order to talk about Leviticus, we need to go back to the beginning. Now, usually at this church, when we say go back to the beginning, what do we mean? Genesis. Genesis. And what part of Genesis? Like Genesis 1. Because that's where God wants to start his story, so that's where we want to start our story. Today, we're not going to do that because next year, we're going to do a huge series through Genesis. Yeah, whoa is right. It's going to go through our Lenten series, through our summer. It's going to be a big chunk of 2017, and then we're going to cap off 2017 with Revelation. So so we're going to go from one end to the other end, and it will be great, Uh, tree to tree, if you will. But we have that coming up um, next year. So today, what I want to do is I want to start in Exodus. Genesis really serves as an introduction to the narrative of God. So it's really important. We almost always go back to Genesis. It it tells us about the characters. It gives us the backstory. It sets the stage. It tells us who this God is and what this God is up to in the world. But the narrative itself really starts with Exodus. And there's lots of books that have been written about the narrative of Scripture as being a narrative of Exodus. Like God keeps taking his people through the cycle of Exodus because we We forget where we came from. If we remember that we were slaves in Egypt, then we remember when we're on top of the story to hear the cry of other people that are in slavery of different kinds. But what happens is after being out of slavery for some time, we start to forget where we came from. And we start to see those people crying out as a nuisance or a threat to our own stability. And so we, we lose the plot, and so God always takes his people back to where. back to slavery. To remind them of where they came from, it would, be a, it would be a good lesson for us just to pause this morning and think about that. When we forget where we've came from, and don't tell me that we're not slaves, maybe not slaves in Egypt. How about slaves to sin? How about slaves to selfishness? How about slaves to addiction? How about slaves to doubt and insecurity? We know what it is to be slaves, and when we forget what it means to be saved from our slavery, we start to seek ourself, and God will take us back to slavery. This is the narrative of Scripture. And so God's story starts off with his people crying out in Egypt. Now, it doesn't even say, at the beginning, it doesn't even say they cry out to Adonai. It doesn't say they cry out to Yahweh. They just cry out making the reader even wonder if maybe they've been in slavery so long they've forgotten who to cry to. I don't know. But God hears their cry anyway, because that's who he is. And he saves his people out of Egypt, and he brings them in the story of the Passover out of Egypt through the plagues, through the Red Sea, saves them for, from Pharaoh, and brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai. Now, if you've been with us for a few years in this church, you might remember that we talked about Mount Sinai as a What? A wedding ceremony, I heard somebody say. It's this gigantic wedding ceremony. And if somebody didn't say it, I made it up in my head. (laughs) It was a few years back. And we talked about the Ten Commandments being a ketubah, a wedding covenant. And what God does is he brings his people to this mountain and he says, I've rescued you out of Egypt and I want to enter into a new, a special relationship with you. The whole earth is mine and all the world, all the nations in it. They're all my people. I love them very dearly. But I want to work with you in a special covenantal relationship. And if you'll enter into this relationship with me, you're going to be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the people respond to this by saying, We're in. We will do. In wedding talk, they say, We do. In fact, they're going to say it three times over the course of the Exodus story, but they say, we do. So let's go ahead and look at that passage. It comes from Exodus 19. Then Moshe went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Ja'akov, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings And brought you to myself. Brought you to myself as wedding talk. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my, and then he uses this phrase, which is a unique phrase, treasured possession. Don't think, don't focus on the possession. Focus more on the treasured. Okay, it's an ancient patriarchal society. It's not where we're supposed to be today. But focus on the treasured. It means Protected. It means taken in, held to my bosom, kept. It's wedding talk. It says even today in Jewish wedding liturgy, they still use the same phrase: "My treasured possession." Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We're going to talk about holy nation here in a moment. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moshe went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, listen, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. So God says to them, if you will marry me, and they end up saying we will, when you you enter in this covenant relationship, something special is going to happen. You're going to be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We'll deal with holy nation in a moment. I want to camp on this kingdom of priests idea. Because that they've been slaves for 400 years. How much do they know about priesthood? Not nothing, because everywhere they've been has priests. They're familiar with the idea of priests, but they're not priest experts. Like Egypt had priests. The land that they're from, Chaldea, has priests. All the land of Samaria has priests. The land of Canaan and the Amorites had priests. They know what a priest is. But when God says a kingdom of priests, what's that? And, and even, secondly, what kind of priests? Like Egyptian priests or Amorite priests or Samarian priests? Are God's priests going to be just like the other priests? And which priests? And so it raises this whole question about priesthood. God, we're in. We want to enter into a covenantal marriage. We do. But what does that mean, kingdom of priests? God says, I'm glad you asked. And the next 20 chapters of Exodus is about building the tabernacle. Anybody tried to read Exodus and get about halfway through and go, nope? (laughs) Yeah, because it goes through like all of these exact instructions about this and that and every little detail Twice. As if once wasn't enough. Goes through all the instructions twice. So they say, what do you mean kingdom of priests? And God says, well, first of all, we need to build the building that's going to sit right in the middle of of your people. Everywhere you go, this building's gonna go with you and it's gonna sit in the center of camp. And you can come here any day and watch priests. I'm going to give you priests... See, the tabernacle is not just where God lives. The tabernacle is this mobile teaching tool that teaches us how to live out the call of God. What do you mean, priests? Well, come to the tabernacle and watch my priests, they're going to be able to teach you. After they build the tabernacle, the very next thing God does is give them the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is the manual for priesthood. Leviticus is the manual in the glove box of the tabernacle, okay? It's the, this is what it means to be a priest. And I think 80% of us in the room, maybe more, look at Leviticus and we're like, ooh, Leviticus, a big bunch of rules and laws, gross. I want to show you that there is a, a distinct method to the Levitical madness, The book of Leviticus is written with an intention and a purpose that once you become familiar with it, it's completely understandable to anybody here in the room. So Leviticus ends up being the manual for what? Priesthood. Okay? So I want to show you this diagram that we created to lead us through the discussion about Leviticus. Leviticus has these four kind of sections to it. And the first section of Leviticus is a section on atonement. It's seven chapters, and this is, by the way, where everybody is like, I'm out, forget it, I'm not reading Leviticus. Chapter one, this is the instructions for a burnt offering. Take a bull, slit its throat, collect its blood. Put part of the bull on the altar, take the other part and discard it outside of camp. Take the blood and wipe it on the horns of the altar, sprinkle it at the base of the altar, pour out the blood on the altar. Whoa, I'm out. This is barbaric, this is primitive. Maybe I'll keep reading, maybe we'll be okay. If you don't have a bull, take a goat, take the goat, slit its throat, collect its blood. Well, I'm, nope. Nope. And see, what we don't understand is we don't go back and put this book in context. Listen, you just came out of Egypt, 400 years of slavery, in an ancient world that understands the gods in a particular way. God just told you to build a house where he's going to live in your midst. The creator of the universe is going to camp right there. No, sir, Rebob. Not I. Said the Jew. I'm not going anywhere near that. Are you are are you are you nuts? God's gonna live there? No. The first thing God has to do, before we can talk about anything else, before we can talk about bacon, kosher clothing, putting two kinds of seed in your field, before we can talk about any of that, we have to make sure that we understand that you and God are okay. And guys, don't tell me this isn't relevant. I have conversations with multiple people in here on levels of counseling and personal conversations and really deep emotional stuff. Every one of us in the room, and some of us really more than others, epidemically struggle with an idea that God is angry at us. Tell me that's not true. Tell me that the way you see God, God's fundamental posture in your life is angry and disappointed. 2,000 years this side of Jesus, you're still wrestling with the same stuff they wrestled with 3,500 years ago. So don't tell me Leviticus is this primitive barbaric thing. Because before we can talk about anything, you have to know that you and God stand in right relationship. And so Leviticus starts with a bunch of sacrifices. And listen, here's the sacrifice. A goat. One goat at 9 a.m. and 6 p.m. for the whole nation. 3 p.m., sorry. Two goats a day for everybody. What? No. See, we get this impression that, like, everybody was bringing, like, endless sacrifices. Like, every time you screwed up, you brought a goat, right? No. No. No, read Leviticus. It would tell us these things. They have an offering they give twice a day for everybody's sin. One goat. That's ridiculous. One goat for all of us in the room, let alone six and a half million Jews. Are you crazy? One goat? This is grace 1,500 years before grace incarnated itself in the person of Jesus. Leviticus is Jesus. It's this crazy, preposterous idea that God is for you, and the thing that you get to learn is the love and forgiveness of God. But I need to move on. The second section is a section on priesthood, going from chapter eight to about chapter 22. In chapters eight through 10, I learn all about what the priest is supposed to wear. I learn about the priest's sexuality. I learn about the priest's land ownership. The priests have a set of rules that not everybody has to live by. The rest of the Israelites don't live by them. The priests have this additional set of rules that they have to live by. They have to wear these ridiculous outfits. If you don't think they're ridiculous, do a Google image search on Jewish priests and imagine walking around the Negev desert in that outfit. That's ridiculous. I was up here on Easter in the priest outfit. Do you remember? I looked weird, right? That's the idea, but we're going to get to that in a moment. And then this section ends in chapter 21 and 22. This section ends with, what do you do when the priest screws up? Like we have all these sacrifices when the people screw up, but what do you do when the guy that's supposed to be in charge of the thing screws up? And so there's all these additional rules for that priest. And what happens in that situation? And in the middle of this section sits a section on your rules. As the people of God. Not to eat bacon. Not to wear clothing made of two different kinds of fabric. Not to put two different seeds in your, kind of, in your field. Why? Why does that sit right in the section on priesthood? Because it's your call to be a priest. God did not say you're going to be a kingdom with priests. God said you're going to be a kingdom of priests. That means that you have a call to priesthood. And you can learn about that call to priesthood by watching the priests. But God says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to not eat bacon. We're going to talk about why here in just a moment. You're going to not wear clothes of blended fabric. You're going to, what to do when you get mold in your house. How to cleanse an infectious skin disease. What to do after you've had a baby. All of these things because God says, I want you to have a unique role in the world that nobody else has. Third section is how to celebrate. How to celebrate. Because if you get hung up on the rules, you're gonna lose the plot of the whole story. We have to remember that the story started out in Genesis 1 with a God who loved the world and is trying to put it back together. And if we forget that and we can't celebrate that no matter where we are and what our circumstances, we've lost the plot of the story. And so God ordained the party. I'm going to try not to say that too many times because apparently last time I made everybody mad and whatever because the party apparently is evil. No, the party was ordained by God. And if we can't teach our kids how to party appropriately, they're going to find the God-ordained party in non-God-ordained places. So, uh, uh, God said how to celebrate. Sorry, got a little off off track there. And then the last section is about justice for the oppressed, meaning how are you going to help put the world back together? And so every seven years, you have a Sabbath year. And every 50 years, you just reset the clock. What do you mean, reset the clock? Is this a communist agenda? This is a Leviticus agenda. We take everything, we put it all back. If you acquired land from somebody else 50 years ago, you give it all back. There's a whole bunch of debts that you have. You cancel all the debts. Any kind of investment and in property, it all goes back. Because whatever God gave each family is going to go back to each family every 50 years. Because we're going to put things back where they need to be. We're not going to let this huge, never, never mind. It's election year. I've got to be careful. Um, then there's, then there's, there's the, the last chapter of Leviticus. is like this barbaric thing where it's like you're setting a price on people's head. Like, well, a man, well, he's worth 30 shekels, but a woman, she's worth 20, and then a seven-year-old's worth this, and a, whoa, this is crazy. In an ancient world, God is giving them a way to get people back in the family. What do you do when somebody screws up and they lose their way? God says, I'm, I'm gonna give you a way to get them back. And we lose that, because we look at it from this 3,000-year-later perspective. no. God's giving them this is the call to priesthood. So now you can look at this diagram and you can identify what lots of scholars have looked at and called the four roles of the priesthood. Okay, there are four roles to priesthood that I want to kind of go through up here. The first role to priesthood is this. A priest's job is to help people navigate their atonement. So let's say you wrong your neighbor, okay? You wrong your neighbor and you bring your neighbor and a goat like you do to the tabernacle, because you need need to make things right. And so the priest, you're not really sure exactly how the rules work. You kind of know, and so you show up, and you're like, I screwed up, and I wronged my neighbor, and I'm here with my neighbor and my goat. Is this the right sacrifice? And the priest is like, yes or no, or here's what you need. And then the priest is going to walk you through the sacrifice. Did you know that half the sacrifices in Leviticus are meals? No, of course not, because... We just kind of like had this blanket view of Leviticus as this horrible thing and sacrifices. I screw up, I bring my animal, I kill it, I burn it. Hooray. No, half these sacrifices are meals. So you bring your goat and your neighbor, and you take part of the goat and you burn it because it's God's part. And you take another part of the goat and you sit down and you have a meal. You and the neighbor and the priest. And you have a meal together, which in an Eastern culture is a way of saying, We're right, because I will not eat with you if I don't have common fellowship with you. And the priest is the one that navigates that conversation for you. So you showed up at the tabernacle with all this guilt and all this shame and your goat, and you leave the tabernacle in freedom because you've been made right before God and you've been made right with your neighbor. And you can go sleep that night. Because it sprinkled your conscience. Okay? This, the priest helps you navigate that conversation. The priest is the one that's supposed to be showing people how God is for them and how to make things right. Second, fourfold role of the priest. I'm, I love the book of Leviticus. Are you guys as excited as I am? <laughs> okay. I love Leviticus. It's so good. I'm so sick of people like Leviticus. Gross. Put God on display. Second role of the priesthood. Why does a priest look funny? Because when you look at the priest, you're supposed to see, what was the other thing that God said? He said, you'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The word for holy is the word kadosh. Say kadosh. Kadosh means set apart, sanctified, different. It does not mean perfect. It does not mean perfect. It does not mean perfect. Write that in your notes. Say it after me. It does not mean perfect. Okay, good. The translation in Matthew is absolutely horrific. He's quoting Leviticus 19 and 20. There's no way that you can't say perfect in the Hebrew. So it has to be kadosh. So every time Matthew says, be perfect as your father is perfect, and you're like, well, golly, who can do that? Listen, I wear these tassels because Jewish people were told in the book of Numbers to wear tassels. Say zitziot on the kanaphot of your tlithiot. Isn't that so much fun? Hebrew's awesome. Okay. And in each tassel, you're supposed to put one blue thread. All the other threads are white. So you have this one blue thread. Well, blue is the color of what? Priesthood. Remember the color of the robe I was wearing up here on Easter? Well, what color was it? That color. And the Jews said, this is our reminder to be priests because there's only how many threads? It marks me as different. If all the other nations in the world are this way, I'm supposed to be, say, kadosh, set apart. If God, if all the other gods of creation are this way, your God is kadosh. And you are to be kadosh as your heavenly father is kadosh. Can you do that? Say yes. yes. Thank you. That's our call to be a priest. If there's nothing distinct about us, we have nothing to tell the world. Now, yes, in the Jewish world, it was about what you wear and it's about what you eat and it's about all those things, which probably still applies even today. But now, 3,000 years later, you and I are supposed to understand it's about bigger things than that. It's about how you love other people. We'll get to that later. I'm starting to ramble. Okay, three. Distribute resources to those in need. The priesthood facilitates, there are always people that have too much and there's always people that don't have enough. It is not the job to make sure everybody has an equal amount, but it is the job to make sure that things are in their appropriate place. Did you realize that Leviticus gives the command multiple times to help out the person in need and never once does it actually address why they're in need in the first place? Not once does Leviticus say, unless it's their fault, and then don't help them. Let's run our benevolence program on that theology. <laughs> Leviticus never deals with that. Leviticus says that the world is going to be out of, out of, out of balance, and, and you need to make sure that shalom happens. And so the priests take the tithe, and the priest takes the first fruits, and the priest takes the voluntary offerings. And he, he facilitates the system. Did you know that every single offering that was brought to the tabernacle, there was a portion for the priest, except the burnt offering. It was all God's. Every other offering, there's a portion for the priest. The priest takes this portion. They make sure that they have enough to survive. And yes, that got really corrupt, and Jesus was really, really angry by the time he got here. Okay? I understand that. But that was the system that God gave them. The priests were supposed to take what they need. They were supposed to use what was needed to run the tabernacle, and then they were supposed to take the rest and distribute it to the places that needed it. And yes, that's what Jesus is mad about. That's what gets him crucified. He spends three years with the Pharisees and nobody touches him. He spends one week with the Sadducees, who are the high priesthood, and he gets himself crucified. Three years with the Pharisees. People like to say the Pharisees and Sadducees crucified Jesus. No, they didn't. The Sadducees did. Pharisees tried to save his life twice. Twice. Sadducees are the ones that crucified Jesus because he confronted a corrupt system and said, God is not in it and this is your last chance before God destroys it. And it got him killed. Because those priests said, "Uff, with his head, they forgot where they came from. They forgot where they came from. Okay, so fourth role of priesthood, intercede on behalf of others. So the priest is the one that stands in the gap between God and the people. And the priest takes the commands and the desires and the teachings from God and he brings them over here and he gives them to the, uh, the people and pleads God's case on behalf of them. This is what God wants and this is why we've gotta do it. It's worth it. Let's do what God asks of us. At the same time, the priest also comes over here and pleads the case of the people before God says, God, you've got to accept these people. Even this person wearing a Steelers jersey over here. <laughs> Who day? Go Bengals. Okay, I'm the one with the stage right now. I'm the one with the stage. Okay. Um, the, the, I've been working on getting that in the sermon all morning long. I'm like, how? How? Uh, so the priest pleads the case of of the people before God. They're like, well, that doesn't really fit with my sovereign God theology. But here's the problem. This is what we see all throughout the Old Testament. Moses goes after the golden calf, and he stands before God, and what does he say? Don't hurt them. Blot me out, but don't hurt them. That's priest. Jesus hangs on the cross and says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. What is that? That's priest. That's Jesus standing before God going, God, they don't know what they're doing. Please don't take it out on them. That is the fourth role of priesthood. Now, we're probably all sitting here going, this is a great, wonderful Jewish conversation. What a wonderful Old Testament lesson. Unfortunately, the New Testament's not going to let you off the hook. So Peter is going to be writing to everybody that calls themselves a Jesus follower which is probably most of you in the room, not all of you, but probably most of you in the room, Peter writes to all of us, Jew and Gentile, and he says this. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Listen, God's special possession. What do you suppose I would say if it was in the Hebrew? treasured, what is he quoting, lifting deliberately right out of? Exodus 19. He says, this call is for all of you. You're all priests. That you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have how many people does that apply to in this room today? First service didn't have anybody. There was like three, which is really dis- disturbing that there was only three people that had the mercy of God showered on their life. I think that applies to anybody who calls yourself a Jesus follower, wake up, go back home, start over this morning, go climb back in bed, get up all over again, take a new shower and come back to third service because that is our story. We once didn't have mercy, but now we have received Mercy. Okay, So that means that we're all priesthood. Now, I've got four implications, but before we do that, we need to do the Lord's Supper as we always do every week, and so I'm going to have our servers go back and get ready for that. If you're visiting with us today, we have an open table. That means if you want to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you are family and you are welcome to join us today. Just hold on to the bread and the juice and we'll take it all together here in just a moment. As they do that, I want to walk through four implications. What do you suppose they're going to be? The four roles of the priesthood. Very good. All right. Because if you're a priest, listen, if you're a priest, that means that you have a call placed on your life fourfold. Here's the first one. Help people navigate atonement. Our role is to help people see that God is for them and things are good between them and God our job as priests is to facilitate a right relationship with God. So how come all of our evangelism techniques start with drawing a line between them and God? Stop it. That's not the role of the priest. The role of the priest is to welcome you through the gate of the tabernacle and to say, come, let me show you how you stand right before God. Not to stand at the door and go, first things first. You see this line? Second implication. Put God on display. If the world is going to see a God who is different We cannot look like everyone else. If the world is going to see a kadosh God, they are going to have to see a Kadosh people. So if we're if we are not different kinds of employers, if we're not different kinds of employees, if we're not different kinds of consumers, if we're not different kinds of voters, if we're not different kinds of you fill in the blank, if there's nothing distinct about you, why in the world would anybody care at all what you have to say about God? Because it's true? Good luck. You only have something to say if a world Has a question in the first place. I want more of you know what it says in Genesis? We'll run into this. You know what they said when they came out to Abraham? We've seen God at work in your life. We don't know much about your God, but we've been watching you, and your God is undeniably at work. So tell us more. That is the conversation that priests provoke. I have it a little easy because I have all these funny things hanging off my clothes and funny things and funny things. I'm just a funny guy. So people are always like, what are those? Now, yeah, you could all start wearing tassels, but that really isn't the point at all. The point is to have something else that people would point at because it's just a tassel. And this tassel means nothing if my life doesn't back up what it represents. So just skip the tassel and have a life that provokes the question. Okay, third implication. Distribute resources to those in need. Our role is to facilitate generosity and tend to the needs of others. Your job as a priest is to notice the needs of others, care, and do something about it. Your job is to notice the needs of others, care, and do something about it. And if any one of those pieces is missing, we miss it. If we care and do something about it but never notice, who cares? If we notice and do something about it but don't care, it's void of its power, you get the idea. We have to notice the needs of others. We have to actually care about the needs of others. We have to do something about it. But fourth, and this is the one that I'm going to get really jacked up about, and I'm going to not. I'm just going to read it and just let it be. No, I'm not, but nevertheless. This one, our role as priests is to intercede on behalf of others. We ought to be people who fight for everyone's place in the family, not explain why they aren't allowed. Your job as a priest is to find every single loophole you can find to have an outsider stand right before God. You want a test case for this? Imagine if the the end of days is a gigantic wedding feast, because that's what the scriptures tell us, and it's all assigned seating, and the lights get flipped on one day, and you're at a table full of all those people that you can't stand. Fill in the blank. I'll let you fill in the blank, because if I do, I'll get in trouble. So you fill in the blank of all those people that you don't like, because they're icky, gross, disgusting. What is your reaction gonna be if that's the case? Because if it's not outright celebration, we've lost our call to priesthood. Because the priest is supposed to facilitate And argue the case for every, golly, this makes me so, thank you. Man, how how come whenever I do this, I get the theology police on my case telling me about why they're not allowed? That's not our role as priests. Our role as priests is to figure out a way to get them in. And I might stand before God and have God go, well, boy, that was kind of a loophole. You stretched to do something. But I will not stand before God and have him say, how come they didn't see a God of grace and a God of love? Man. (laughs) Leviticus. All right. We hold in our hands bread and juice. And there's a lot of things I love about this church, but one of them is that we have an open table here. Now, there are some Christian traditions that have what's called a closed table, and there's lots of good reasons for that. I'm not here to pick and choose, but I like this place and its open table because it represents the priesthood we're talking about today. Our call is to facilitate people coming and partaking in the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Our goal is to let them know they have free access to forgiveness in Christ Jesus. It's all theirs. It doesn't matter what they brought through or what kind of history or what kind of relapse or what kind of failure or what kind of divorce or what kind of gender or what kind of whatever. They come through the doors here and they're welcome to partake of the love and the grace and the compassion and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And we want to facilitate that conversation. I'm shaking. I like Leviticus. (laughs) Jesus, that night, took a piece of bread, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, and whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember what the story is all about. Later in the meal, Jesus took a cup, and this cup was called the Cup of the Covenant, and this, this cup represented the relationship we've been talking about all morning. The Sinai Covenant. This cup represented a partnership between God and his people. And Jesus took this cup during the meal. He said, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant. And whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember our call to priesthood. Father God, I pray that you would... <clears throat> Wake us up, that you would snap us out of our slumber, where we come and we're just passive participants. We're just consumers. We're just spectators. We're just lay people. We're just parishioners. And remind us that we're not just parishioners, we're priests. Remind us that we have a call in this world. Remind us that you've called us to intercede on behalf of others to facilitate generosity in all of its many kinds of forms, to put you on display and to help people navigate a right relationship with you. Remind us of our call to bring people and facilitate the smoothest transaction they could ever experience into the love and the acceptance and the grace of being called a child in your family. God, thank you for your forgiveness and your steadfast faithfulness because we need it as your people over and over and over again. Forgive us as we lose the plot of our own story. Forgive us when we forget where we came from. And forgive us when we forget our call to be a priest. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus, our great high priest. And we pray we could follow in his footsteps. Laying down our lives on behalf of other people facilitating a right relationship with the God of the universe that loves them more than we could ever imagine. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from real life. If you'd like to find out more information about who we are, what we're about, or what's happening in our church, make sure to check out liferotp.com and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Also, if you'd like to dive deeper into this week's conversation, make sure to check out the accompanying footnotes podcast available in this feed.